0: This is episode number 240 with California artist Rich Gago.
1: This is the Plan air podcast with Eric Rhodes publisher and founder of plein air magazine. In the plein air podcast, we cover the world of outdoor painting called plein air. The French coined the term, which means open air or outdoors. The French pronounce it plein air. Others say plain air. No matter how you say it, there is a huge movement of artists around the world who are going outdoors to paint. And this show is about that movement. Now, here's your host, author, publisher,
0: and painter, Eric Rhodes. Thank you Jim Kipping and welcome everybody to the Plein Air Podcast. My name is Eric Rhodes, publisher of Plein Air Magazine, and I am thrilled to be here. I hope you had a wonderful Valentine's Day. Mrs. Rhodes and I went out, we had a great time, but we never go out on the actual night. We always go out on one of the bumper nights. We went out the night before. Just to avoid the crowds. Anyway, I hope it was fun for you. I made a hand painted Valentine's card that was a big hit. And uh, it was one of the few chances I got to do some painting. Although I've got to start tuning up because spring is already starting to come around here. Here in Texas, we're going to get the blue bonnet fields of blue bonnets. We're going to get wildflowers. We're going to get all the blossom trees, and it's time for me to get out and start practicing, get my spring training in. Speaking of which, spring training, uh, a great place to get it is our next giant online conference. So, When I say giant, I mean potentially thousands of people. Uh, we have uh, people from oh, usually 30, 40 countries attending, people watching in different time zones. Sometimes they're watching replays uh, anyway, it's called Plan Air Live, and I handpicked 30 top masters to teach, including having an Essentials Day for those of us who need reminders or those of us who want to learn from scratch. Uh, and this is easy because there's no travel, no 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 expensive hotel rooms, no airplanes. You can watch from home, watch the replays if you can't do it live. If you have to work, work. What's that? Anyway, this is uh, the best possible way to get to be part of the plein air community, to learn the whole plein air lifestyle, and I've got a brand new video up at pleinairlive.com on the plein air lifestyle. You want to go there and check that out. Anyway, um even if you're somebody who doesn't go outside to paint but uh, you want to be a better landscape painter, you're going to hear uh, and see the instruction from all these great painters, and it's a great place for to go. And you know, we were doing so one of the one of the attendees did some calculations the other day from our watercolor live event and she she figured out that it was costing about 15 bucks per demo. So that's a and you got a lot of variety. It's a really great way to do it. By the way, speaking of another opportunity for you, uh, this may in Denver, the big 10 year anniversary of the plein air convention, this is the, place to be in the plein air world. And it's in person. We have about 80 top instructors coming, five stages, big screens so that you see every detail. Uh, And if you want to get really, really up close, we also have VIP programs. Anyway, this is going to be potentially the biggest in our history because Denver was like one minute away from being sold out when we had to cancel for COVID and so uh, a lot of those people are coming back and signing up, and, and uh, but this is something you want to do. Anyway, it's five days of instruction. Uh, we go painting every day. You're watching on these stages. There's so much fun. It's really a lot of fun. It's one of my favorite times. Uh, we have uh, TV star Jane Seymour is going to be joining us that week, and we also have C.W. Monday is coming in, and a, a load, a load of top artists, too many to mention here today, but check it out at plein air convention.com. Now, my guest today is a rock star painter. His name is Rich Gallego. He has been painting the landscape since 1996. His love of nature and wild places has taken him from Arizona's Canyon de Chez to uh, beaches of Hawaii, from the rivers and gorges and adobes in New Mexico to the glaciers of Alaska and so many places in between, all in search of of the great next painting, right? And I love his work. He's getting a lot of attention in the plein air world and he's got lots of workshops and, you know, he's one of those people who's on fire right now. And he's also one of the world's nicest guys. So I recorded this interview earlier at my Austin soundstage. We're going to go there now and get started our guest today the great landscape artist richard gallego richard welcome thank you very much eric happy to be here thank you so where did
2: this journey begin for you have you always been an artist no i haven't um about 24 years ago i guess uh, I started working with a friend of mine who did uh, sculpture fabrication at a, a place in Burbank, California.
0: What does that mean, sculpture fabrication? Well, when you have
2: artists that did uh, monumental size sculptures that didn't fit in their studios, uh-huh. they would bring it to a, a fabrication place and give them the specs. And then that, that company would build the piece for them. And the artist, of course, still gets credit. It was their concept and their, you know, their specifications. So I was working there with a friend part time and uh, on the weekends, we'd go out to sculpture gardens and kind of refurbish things as they needed. And it just was kind of an introduction to the art world for me. And uh, so shortly after that, I started drawing and doing a little sculpting myself. And I found that it didn't offer the immediate gratification that I, I guess I wanted at the time. Um, so I did more drawing and painting. And, And it kind of evolved from there.
0: So drawing and painting, was this something that you were just kind of being self-taught or did you get some instruction?
2: No, at that point it was all self-taught, you know, and and the more interested I got in it, the more I sought out resources like books and magazines and that sort of thing. And and unfortunately at that time there wasn't, you know, a streamlined publishing available to look at all their resources. But um, yeah, I just started doing things on my own and uh, found that I really enjoyed it and uh, a little while later, uh, when I met my, like, my wife-to-be, we weren't married then at, at that point. but Nobody so, ever is when they first meet. Yeah, began. true. <laughs> yes. So, no, she, she uh, said to me one day, you know, you seem to really like painting, and, um, and I know that you like being out in, in the wilderness. You know, I like backpacking and all that kind of stuff. She said, you should do like those people that go outside and paint there. Hmm. And, and I, I didn't even know what she was talking about at that Smart time. woman. Yeah, that she's proven that many times over, actually. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, so I, I said, oh yeah, that would be fine. You know, I, I, I'd do that, I guess. Well, I had, a I think, a birthday coming up a couple of weeks later, and she surprised me by buying me a French easel. Uh-huh. And in truth, I, you know, I kind of blew it off a little bit. I wasn't planning on going outside to paint, yeah. but then she gets me this easel. I got to put it to use or she's going to be offended or hurt, you know. Right. So. At that point, I took a day off of work, and I went out to Malibu Creek State Park, and I set this thing up, and I started doing an absolutely horrendous painting. And about 10, 15 minutes into it, I stepped back, and I just was overcome with this feeling of, this is the best thing ever. Yeah. I mean, it literally hit me that hard, that quickly, and I was absolutely hooked from that point on. And-
0: well, let's talk about plein air painting for a minute, and then we'll get back into your history. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, It does have that impact, and of course, it's a huge movement now, it's grown tremendously. Why do you think that is? What is it about plein air painting that just makes the experience so much richer?
2: Well, I mean, I I suppose that the things that attract me to it are are true for at least some of the other folks that are involved, but I I can speak for myself and say, I do love being outdoors. Um, I, I do love experiencing nature firsthand and when you're outdoors painting, you're, you're getting a complete uh, sensory experience, right? You get to you're res- engaging all your senses. Oh, completely. Yeah. You, you're seeing the sights, you're smelling the scents, you're, you're hearing the sounds and, and um, you know, all of that together. And then I think a lot of us just naturally have something of a creative urge. Yeah. And if you give it an opportunity to manifest itself, You know, this is the kind of thing that happens, I suppose. So
0: So there are a lot of other benefits to plein air painting. Oh, yeah. Um,
2: Talk about those. So for me, um, it's been a really interesting journey in that I find a lot of metaphors for for other parts of my life. Okay. Uh, And having observational powers, you know, they say that that learning to paint is really learning to see. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, that's helped me in other parts of my life in the sense that I recognize that if I'm not seeing things clearly, I can't react appropriately to them. And by going out to paint, one of the first things I learned is I have to be able to observe things clearly, and then you have to be able to sort through what's important and what's not important. Well, there's a lot of situations in my life where I, I use those same skills to, to make a better decision. You know? yeah, let's talk about that for a second,
0: because I think that's an important point. You know, when you go outside to paint, which of course we both do. Mm-hmm. Um, you you pick your scene, whatever your scene is, and you're overwhelmed with data, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's details and leaves and rocks and sunshine and clouds and shadows yeah. and, you know, all this yeah. data
2: coming at you. Yeah. How do you deal with that? So uh, for me, I, somewhere along the line, and I, I'm sure it's from reading, you know, interviews and, and books about other artists that, that I admire, you, know, you, you start to realize that the important thing is, what is your response to the scene? And what is the essence of the scene? Because you know, it's very rare that we have a scene laid out in front of us. That's a, it's perfect to paint it exactly as it is. Although you know, early in the process, that's what most of us try to do. We're just trying to render everything so that it looks like what it looks like. But over time you realize that there are some things that are extraneous and you need to edit them out. And, and I've come to realize that there's a big difference between simple and, and simplistic, because simplistic means I haven't taken the time to edit out the extraneous. And simple means I have done that and what I'm left with is the essential. And that's when I'm able to get the essence of a scene. And, and again, it's a metaphor for life as well, right? You get rid of all the garbage that, that just gets in the way.
0: Well, this is a natural reaction. I think most people, when they start painting, they're trying to make it look like a photograph. Sure. And, yeah. and not that there's anything wrong with that. Everybody's got their own direction, their mm-hmm. own thing. Uh, that certainly was my case. Yeah. And what happens then is once we kind of learn the, the core root techniques, and you've got it to the point where you can produce something that looks almost photographic in nature, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden it doesn't seem to be as satisfying. Yeah. And that's when you, all of a sudden you start becoming an artist instead of a renderer.
2: Yeah. Is that a word? Well, <laughs> it can be. <laughs> it is yeah, it's sort a, of it just a recording now. device, right? Yeah. yeah um, you know, there's a continuum obviously from absolute beginner to I suppose at some point if you're fortunate enough to master. And and somewhere on that continuum, you start to realize that things don't, people might say they don't look quite right. I think it's almost more of a feeling. They don't feel quite right. And again, what I've, what I've figured out, at least it's, for me it works, I, I have a scientific approach to a lot of things, okay? And so I start thinking, okay, why is this painting not, not feeling right? And it's, this, it's the sort of thing you're talking about where there's, it's almost photographic because I've looked at you know, something over at the far left of my composition and I've rendered it in high detail. And then I've moved to somewhere else and I've done the same thing and it's the same level of detail all across the panel, right? And you end up with something that, it's not really the way we experience the world as human beings, um, if, if I can f- digress for a moment. We're, we're hunter-gatherers, okay? and we are hardwired to look at something, focus on it, and everything in our peripheral vision at that point, we can still see things, but not with the same level of detail, okay? So, whatever we happen to be looking at, that's our focal point. Well, if you're gonna show somebody a picture, a painting, where there's one thing that's supposed to be your focal point, you can't have the same level of detail everywhere. And if you do it that way, and this is why painting from a photograph can be a little bit of a trap if you're not aware, what happens is you start the viewer sees the painting and they're experiencing the world as if it's a photograph. They're not experiencing it as a human being would experience it. So knowing the difference, uh, you know, you can paint from a photograph, but you got to go back and make those adjustments and make sure that, the, you know, the highest level of detail, more chroma, harder edges, whatever it may be, is reserved for the focal area, not the, the periphery.
0: So there's a great debate about this. Yeah. And, and I, I, can, I won't mention names. Uh, there are artists out there, very well known, very prominent, mm-hmm. who believe the opposite, and that is that you want to represent nature like someone would experience it. In other words, you look there, that's in focus. You look there, that's in focus. Uh, And then the other side of that argument is I want to control the experience that they get. Mm -hmm. I want that to be in focus because that's the thing that I love, that's the thing that really turns me on, and I
2: want everything else to kind of blend so it feels like peripheral vision. Mm -hmm. And I would say to that person, you're right, and that's why you might do four or five different paintings of the same scene. Because in one of them that rock is your focus, in another that tree is your focus, in Mm -hmm. another the relationship of these other two shapes is your focus. Right. So you can make anything to focus, but if you try to make everything to focus, and we all have different artistic sensibilities. For me, it becomes confusing, distracting. So if I have an idea that's clear in my own mind about what I wanna say about a scene, I wanna make sure that I, I get that across you know, without any, any confusion. And so for me to paint everything with the same like, photographic level of detail, it just doesn't work. And, you know, there are people that paint from photographs and make lovely paintings, really wonderful work. I think it's important to know how your own brain works. Um, my brain has been hardwired for science for a long time. I had a previous career that- We're going to talk it. about that. Yeah. And and so I realized that if I start getting too detailed about things, it can get way out of hand really quickly.
0: So you- um There are also other benefits to painting outdoors, and I wanna touch on those because Mm -hmm. some of the people who are listening to this might not be aware of those. Um, There is the, um, how could I say this? The impact or the change on how you paint versus how you would
2: paint in the studio. What are those things? Well, I think, um, again, speaking for myself and knowing how things work in my own head. I, I just know that I, I tend to do better paintings, I believe, when I'm painting outdoors. Do you ever use photos? I, I'll use them from time to time, but I have to be very, very careful about it. I and mean, it's only if I'm someplace that's absolutely, you know, stunning and I don't have time to paint, Yeah. right? But frequently what I'll do is I'll, I'll do a plein air piece and I'll use that as my reference and not photos, because again, I'm wired in such a way that if I, if I have the photograph there, it's really easy for me to start going too much towards photorealism. And when I say too much, look, if you like photorealism, I guess there is no too much. Yeah. But for my personal aesthetic, that's, that's not what I wanna do. Yeah. So I have to you know, know myself and, and know what my limitations are. And I find that I do better work if I'm at least getting my references out, outdoors. People outdoors.
0: tell me that uh, people who have painted in in the studio their whole lives, Mm -hmm. oftentimes painting from photographs, who've never painted outdoors from a reference, they tell me it changes their work. Why is that?
2: Well, um, I suppose it's gotta have an effect if you go from a controlled environment, the light is controlled, the sound is controlled, there are no wild animals approaching you, whatever (laughs) it may be, right? Um, And then suddenly you put yourself out in the middle of nature. And there's so many other things to contend with, right? Um, Over time, when you learn to deal with those things, I think you realize that you've got to at least start quickly because you've got to get your light and shadow patterns nailed before they change, right? Uh, So there's that. And then I think the way we perceive color in reality when we're out in the middle of it is different than the way a camera records it. Yeah. Uh, you don't get a lot of bounced light in a camera, well, I'm not a photographer, maybe it's just that I don't know how to photograph things well, but when I look at photographs, I don't see a lot of reflected light in the shadows, but when I'm outside, I can certainly see that.
0: Well, photographs lie. So, photograph, yeah. it, it, at least a typical photograph lies, right. Right. right? There are photographers who know how to overcome this, yeah. but most of us, if we take our phone, and we take a shot of something, it's gonna blow out the sky, yep. it's gonna darken the shadows, you're not gonna see the color or detail in yeah. the shadows or the reflected light. And it, the other thing is that it changes form. Yeah. So you see form, form differently when, you're, when, when the yeah. subject is in front of you, and that's because you're using two horrible, what, what would be the word, two, two eyes, yeah. two round eyes, and a, a camera lens is using one, mm-hmm. and so it's, it's distorting things it ever so slightly. Yeah. True. Now, I think one of the things that's been really exciting for me, uh, I discovered plein air painting, I don't know, 20, 20-ish years ago probably. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my wife was pregnant. Um, She couldn't stand the smell of the paint. I was painting in the back bedroom. I had to go outdoors. I didn't know anybody did that, like like your wife, you know, pointed out to you. One of the benefits that I have found is that you make a lot of friends.
2: Oh, absolutely. And and to me, that's been a a (laughs) lifesaver. Yeah. No, I. It's it's interesting that you say that because I'll sometimes joke with some of my students that, you know. The fact that I teach plein air painting, and I, and I do it quite a lot, it's, it's really just a, a ploy to get more friends because <laughs> almost all of them become good friends. Uh, yeah. Some of them in fact have become like my biggest champions in, you know, in the art world. Um, yeah, that's definitely a benefit because you're, you're doing something, you, you've got a shared passion for something that, and it doesn't matter if you have nothing else in common with these people. If you have that, it's something that you can, I've got friendships over, Fifteen years at this point that are based just on our love of plein air painting.
0: Right, you remember you. I was. We were at the plein air convention together, and I went on stage and said, "It's the new golf," because you're outdoors, you're with friends, you're challenged, uh, you're in nature. Well, you're outdoors, you're in Mm -hmm. nature, you're being creative, but you're also you get all, all these other benefits that you don't get in golf. You know, golf, you're getting you're getting frustrated we get frustrated yeah. painting but you know it's not about a score right i th- i just think it's a it's a tremendous
2: lifestyle oh i completely agree i mean it's it's allowed me to travel to places that i you know some of which i, I wouldn't have otherwise gotten to see and and for me one of the biggest benefits there are times when somebody will say something you know really generous like oh they us see your painting this oh you, you have a gift and and I, I smile and i try to be gracious about it because you know, first of all, I know that there are plenty of painters out there that do phenomenal work. Okay? Yeah. But, but when someone says something like that, I always think, yeah, I do have a gift, but you don't quite know what it is. And what it is, from my perspective, is in order to do this reasonably well, you have to be able to see nature on a, on a level that most people don't, right? I mean, most people, they're driving down the street, they see this vertical brown cylinder with a bunch of green things around and say, Oh, that's a tree. Don't drive into it. Survival mode says, that's all the information I need. Avoid driving into that. But if you're going to paint it, you've got to see all the different positive and negative shapes. You have to see the, the color and temperature and value transitions. And so you start looking at the world differently all the time. I see things now I'll be out just driving and I'll look at a scene and I'll see it in paint. Now, I've, I've tried to do that sometimes, but sometimes it just happens, and I, I can imagine what it would look like in paint. And the gift is, I get to see the world at a level that most people don't, and it's just from painting. That's it.
0: Yeah, and that, that's your everyday world. Yeah. Yeah. You're driving down the road, and, and you're experiencing, you're seeing things that other people don't even notice. Right. Um, you know, you're, they're seeing a sunset, you're seeing the variation of colors in that sun. You're seeing yeah. so much more depth. I think that that's a real benefit, you know, the Absolutely. eyes of an artist. And, and that's true whether you're plein air painting or not, but it's enhanced yeah. when you're plein air painting, Definitely. I think. So, I don't know why I'm asking this question, but my sense is that for you, there's a spiritual component.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, several years ago, I was doing a demo uh, outside of a gallery that represented me in and there was a park right across the street, so I was doing a demo there. And this little girl came walking by with her mother and at one point she says to me, why do you paint? And at that point, honestly, it's not a question that I had considered, right? But she made me consider it. And I don't know, I don't remember what I said to her at that time, Uh, I'm sure it wasn't anything too profound. Right. (laughs) But uh, if if I could see that girl today, I would say to her, thank you very much because you caused me to think about things. And so here's my answer to your question. Yes, I enjoy it. I love being outside. I like creating. I I love the process. But I see my job as I take pictures that are scenes that are beautiful. And I try and and point that out to the general public to anybody that will see my paintings. My belief is that life can be full of challenges. There's all kinds of hardships that everybody deals with. You know, we all have our own things going on. And if we don't appreciate the beauty that's in our world, it makes it that much harder to deal with those challenges. I know for a fact that when I go out and paint and I, and I get to see some stream in an overhanging oak tree or whatever, and I get to spend the, the morning, you know, kind of communing with that, just experiencing that, it puts me in a better frame of mind. I'm more appreciative because I know that there's, there's beauty and wonder in our world. And that just puts me in a better state of mind to handle whatever problems I'm dealing with. I believe beauty enhances our lives greatly if we let it. In Japan, there's a concept called
0: forest bathing. There's mm-hmm. a Japanese term I don't know. And the idea is that people who are living in city areas are, are you know, they're, they're living this constant, stress of noise and activity and everything mm-hmm. going on around them, and they're finding that if people will get into nature, go take two weeks and walk through yeah. the woods, it has a, a profound impact, mm-hmm. and yet you're doing that on a kind of daily basis, you know. that's Well, I've become an addict. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, the thing. I get it. Well, yeah. that's, that's the thing, is you, you just, you get to a point where you, you want to be outdoors. Yeah. I, I always talk about when I was a photographer before I was a painter, I would fly around the world to different locations to see these beautiful spots, and I'd walk up, I'd frame a shot, I'd click the button, and I'd move on. Yeah. And I always used to think, oh, these people are picnicking here, how silly, what a waste of time. Hmm. And now when you're standing there in front of a scene for an hour, two hours, three hours, four yeah. hours, whatever, you're seeing things in that scene you would never see in yeah. the
2: first hour. Yeah, so things reveal themselves to you over time. Yeah. Um, this is something that happens to me literally every time I go out to paint, whether I'm teaching a class or I'm just painting for myself. I'll show up at a place, I'll find the scene that I'm interested in painting, and, and I'll get started and, you know, 20, 30 minutes into the process, I'll look up and I'll see something that I didn't notice before. Now, maybe it's because something else was more compelling at the time, usually it's because the lights changed a little bit and it's revealed something that wasn't quite as apparent. Mm-hmm. But you start to realize that in every scene, there are multiple opportunities to do a very good painting. You know, nature's that way. And, and you, you talked about the spiritual component to this. Um, you know, I'm not gonna get preachy on anybody, but for me personally, you know, God's given me a particular set of skills Um, It made me work for (laughs) them, that's for sure. But um, I figure I got to do something with them. I got to do something, you know, beneficial with them. And if pointing out the beauty that's in our world to other people is is what I can do, then I'm going to do it. Because as I said, I think the appreciation of beauty has a profound effect on the way we live our lives. Absolutely. Yeah. So,
0: what's your best pitch to somebody who's watching to give it a try? Because it's kind of overwhelming. Sure. Um, would you say that uh, uh, there's a, this is a question before you answer that one if you were going to recommend to somebody to, to take up plein air painting mm-hmm. would you say just go outside and learn to paint or would you say learn to paint and then go
2: outside well I, I'd probably tell them to go outside and learn to paint and, and the reason for that is that's kind of that's kind of what happened to me. I, you know, I was painting a bit before my wife gave me the easel and said, go outside, right? But not to any great degree. I wasn't learning anything much. I was just kind of experimenting, pushing the paint around. And, and I have the benefit of learning most of what I learned while doing it outside. And the reason I say that's a benefit is because I've had students come to workshops who have said to me, oh, I've been painting in the studio for 20 years. I sell in galleries, I do this, I do that. And then, within two days of the workshop, they 're in tears because they can 't make sense of what's in front of them. When you learn to to organize a composition out of all that chaos, when you learn that early on I, I just think it's an easier you know route to get to successful yeah. paintings
0: well i I wonder about uh, I, I certainly don't disagree with you, but i wonder i'm always telling people go outdoors and learn to paint yeah um, and I think you're you're there in nature you 're getting you're getting the perfect model in front of you, whereas if you're painting from a photograph, you're not getting a perfect model. But I wonder about little simple things like learning to mix colors or learning to use a brush, you know, some of those things, because if you're trying to figure those out when you're outdoors and you're also dealing with the blowing wind and the sun and all of those things, I wonder if, if they might be a little less frustrated and more likely to continue if they at least kind of get those things down. But yeah, I don't know.
2: I, I don't know
0: that there's a right or
2: wrong. Yeah, and, and it might vary from one individual to another. You know, our, our, our brains work different ways, and That's so true. there might not be one perfect recipe. Um, but yeah, I, th- there is obviously some, some logic to learning how to paint a sphere and a cylinder and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I'm starting from uh, the point of having done some drawing, you know, and understanding shape and form and that sort of thing. Uh, so that was long before I ever picked up a paintbrush. Oh,
0: oh by the way, the sculpting is one of the best ways to yeah. learn to paint.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I took um, I took some classes at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California. What a great, great school. Yeah, yeah, and for for some reasons that people might not think of actually too, but um, I had an instructor there who, you know, he saw me one day, we were, we were drawing uh, a model, and uh, he saw me, you know, doing this little, little, little stuff. Right. And he says, and at the time I was, I was something of a bodybuilder and, you know, I was a bigger, more impressive physical specimen. And he says to me, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? What am I doing? I'm like, drawing the model, Rich, you're a big guy. Stand back, do it from the arm or from the shoulder, not from the wrist, make big, broad sculptural strokes with the side of the pencil. And he started telling me to kind of use my own physicality and bring that to bear because he could see that this was not my nature. Yeah. Noodling. Yeah. Who was the instructor? Uh, His name's Mark Strickland. Okay. Yeah. Really good guy and a good painter. Um, So I've kept that in my head, you know, and it's, it's been very helpful. So when I'm outdoors painting, well, or in the studio, I'm, you know, it's from the shoulder. It's not from the wrist. And you
0: know, that's a hard habit to give up because we learn these things when we're yeah. little. Yeah. You know, and and, you know, a lot of people starting out will take that paintbrush and like a pencil, and they'll just sit <laughs> there and and because you have control, but you're you're going to get more freedom if you hold the end of that brush and you yeah. use your arm and and. and That's a hard habit to break.
2: Yeah, you're right. From the time we're very, very young, we pick up a crayon and that's what we do. What's your best advice to break it? To try and think of it in different terms. Like when you said, doing that, you have more control, right? When you said that, I thought, yeah, but you're limiting yourself. Because when you're, first of all, you'll learn to control it, painting from the shoulder, right? But second, it, it's It's all your perspective. you can say, well, I have more control for this fine stuff, but if you start to understand that you'll have more freedom and and it, it's liberating to mm-hmm. to be sculptural and physical with it mm-hmm. um, if that's your nature and it is mine, you know, um, then I, I think knowing thyself is kind of an important concept in all this. <laughs> you know there are things that people talk about all the time you know how do you mix greens and all that and, and, and all this stuff is important, but I really think that there are some other things that that maybe don't have anything to do specifically with painting that you have to be aware of. You know, you said something at the first plein air convention that that stuck with me all these years. You can remember that far back? Uh, Absolutely, yeah. It was the first morning and you had everybody close their eyes and you said, think about what is the most important thing in your life. And I'm like, what is he, I thought you were gonna say, well, if it's not painting, then you're in the wrong place. But what you said was, and I'm, I suspect you remember this. Whatever that most important thing is, make sure that it's taken care of. Make sure that it's good. Because if you're worrying about that, you're not going to be able to do this well or worse to that effect. And of course, the first thing that came to my mind was my my wife and my kids, my family. And I suspect that was the case for a lot of people. I've never forgotten that. But the, the reason I bring that up is because there are other outside factors that, that come to bear. If, you're, if your most important business isn't taken care of, it's hard to concentrate enough to do this well. Mm. Um, and, and there are things like, like I said, knowing thyself, right? What kind of person are you? Are you the person who's gonna do well doing this little noodling, a lot of fine detail stuff? Or are you somebody who, because of your nature, you need to do something more expressive? Yeah, who do you wanna be? Yeah. I,
0: I find myself struggling with who I want to be, even 20, 25 years later. Yeah. And, you know, because I love all kinds of art, and, yeah. I, and I see, you know, I'll, I'll look at something that C.W. Mundy posts that's very abstract and palette knifey, yeah. and and I, I'm like, I want to do that. Yeah. And I'll also look at something that Joe McGirl posts, which is the polar opposite of, right. you know, tightly rendered, but just beautifully executed. And I'll go, I want to do that. And then I'll look at something that, that Kathy Odom posts, or yeah. you post, or, you know, and it's like, I'm schizophrenic. Yeah. And do you find yourself trying it all? Do you, do you find yourself experimenting? What, what's that look like
2: for you? Yeah, so all of the above, right? We all go through that. Um, one of the things that I, I really revere about uh, Lynn Schmeel. Yeah. Oh. Okay? Yeah. So good. Yeah, he's, he's <laughs> otherworldly good. Now he's had a certain level of success, right? But every once in a while he'll do a painting that I look at and I kinda go, what's going on here? And I had an, an opportunity to speak to him at a Masters of the American West show a couple of years ago. And he, he'll experiment, yeah, right? And, and the thing about experiments is that some of them work and some of them don't. But you, I think you have to be willing to go out on that that ledge and and try something different. And as far as the schizophrenic part of it, I have the same experience. I see those same artists and think, wow, that's amazing. Or I'll look at a Franz Klein piece, which is completely different from anything I do, right? Yeah. But I see something that I like, whether it's a color combination or a textural thing or something. But the best advice I ever got was from a a friend of mine that I was taking a class with, Carl Dempwolf, uh, back in 100 years ago. And, and my friend, Paul, he said to me, he'd been at it a little while longer than I had. And he said, we were talking about, you know, what about style? How kind of get, everybody wants to get loose, right? And he said, Rich, just paint like you paint and work on doing that as well as you possibly can. And your style will, will appear. Yeah. And I said, but what if I don't like my style? He said, Rich, paint like you paint. You can't be anybody other than who you are. And I took his advice to heart. And for a while, I thought, no, my stuff is too tight. It's not impressionistic enough. And, but over time, it turns out he's right. You know? Well, it's when you crack that
0: little smile and you go, hey, I think I finally got something I like. You know? and, it, and it feels right to you. Yeah. You know, I, everybody always talks about how do I get my style. Your yeah. style finds you. Yep. you in, instead of chasing a style, yeah. just do what you love.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's
0: really, really great. So you were talking earlier about, you know, an animal when you're out painting or something like that. Um, There are experiences that you've experienced when you've been outdoors painting. Uh, Do any of them come to mind? I love to ask this question because everybody has different
2: moments. Sure, sure. Yeah, um, the first couple that come to mind are, there was... uh, I was doing a painting. It was a commission piece in Florida, and uh, I was up near Cape Canaveral. And there's a wildlife refuge there, uh, Merritt Island, I believe it's called. Yeah. You know who that yeah, is. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm at Merritt Island Wildlife Preserve, and I had gotten there early in the morning. It was pretty cool outside, and as the as the day warmed up, I'm painting this scene, and it's going you know okay. And I start hearing this sound off to my my left side, <laughs> and it sounds like this you know puffiness. I'm like and I turn and there's there's like a six foot long alligator sunning itself on the bank. Oh no. Like, yeah, I kid you not. And it's maybe thirty feet away from me. And uh I like, okay. Well, he doesn't look like he cares that I'm here. He's you know, he's not up on his, you know, feet or anything. He's just kinda laying there flat. Looks like he's trying to warm up in the sun. And I got a painting to do. And so I just kept painting and you know, looking over at the alligator and So instead of looking at my scene and looking at my panel, looking at my scene, it it was panel, scene, alligator, panel, scene, alligator. It never moved, it didn't bother me. And how far away was he? He was about 20, 30 feet away. Yeah, they can move about 20, 30 feet in about five seconds. Yeah, I know, I know. (laughs) Believe me, I know. Um, So there was that one, and then uh, there was a a time out in Southern California where, not too far from my home, actually, where a friend of mine and I had pulled off the side of a road and um, out, out in a rural area, and we set up to, to paint this scene. And, and there's a fence that, you know, there's an easement from the side of the road that's about 15 feet wide or so, and that's where we were. We're not crossing the fence, and it was posted, private property, but we're not on the private property. And we're painting away, having a really good time, and rather suddenly this pickup truck comes racing out this dirt road and comes up to where we are, and there's a man and a woman in it. The gentleman gets out, and he is hot, he's mad. He wants us out of there. We have no right to be there. He's yelling and screaming. And we're kind of, well, what's your problem, pal? We're not doing anything but painting, you know? Well, turns out he had had some kids that were partying on his property on on weekends at night, right, and they're leaving beer bottles and all this other stuff, whatever, and he's just fed up. And he didn't bother to stop and ask, what are we doing or who are we? He just assumed that we were the people that had been doing this stuff, so after a few minutes of talking to him, and his wife, thankfully, was more of a voice of reason. She's saying, now, wait a minute, you don't know who these people are. You know? Well, my friend and I were doing paintings for a joint show that we were gonna be participating in, right, so we ended up inviting the couple to the show, and it got turned around, and everything was fine, but for, for a minute there, you know, you, you're wondering, is this guy gonna lose his mind, because it was so out of Yeah, have control. you ever,
0: you're, you know, you're a big guy, strong guy, but have you ever felt unsafe out there?
2: Um, No, the only time it was ever anything like that. You know, a lot of times when I'm out painting, I'm teaching a class, and a lot of my students are are women. Yeah. And any time I have students at all, but particularly women with me, um, I I always assume that it's my responsibility to make sure that they're safe. Yeah. That's just, you know, I'm a little old fashioned maybe, but that's it. So you're packing heat? Um, I cannot confirm or deny (laughs) any of that. I'm making sure that I can take care of who I need to take care of. Yeah. And we were at a place uh, where there was a park nearby and it happened that there were some people that looked somewhat nefarious, um, probably gang members. And at a certain point in time, a couple of them approached us and I didn't know what their intention was. So I kind of got out in front of my group and said hello to them, you know. And once they, they asked what we were doing and once I told them what we were doing, their mood changed completely. And there, as it happened, there was a hill there that had a cross up on the top of it. Yeah. And um, I wasn't painting that, but I, I did see it. And, and one of the guys said, you see that cross up there? I said, yeah. Uh, he said, yeah, my friends and I brought it up there. You know, he had, they had a friend that passed away and they hiked up there and dragged it. Gave me the whole story of the... And so it started out as being somewhat tense it ended up being diffused because I listened to them tell me about how they brought this cross up there and planted it up there. And that's been about it. you know, in in twenty years or so of doing this, um, most of my interactions with with people or animals have been overwhelmingly positive.
0: but yeah. I think it's really interesting is that um, there's a hundred stories. Sure. And you know, we're all kind of in our little life, and we. Uh, you know, we do. We, you know, we have our routines, mm-hmm. uh, and we kind of stay within our circles, whatever our circles are. But when you're out plein air painting, inevitably, somebody will walk up to you and start talking to you. And you know, if it, sometimes you don't want to talk because you're painting, but sometimes you, you're engaging, yeah. and you'll meet people and hear great stories yep. and, and hear and uh, learn things that you just never would have learned before. Which I think is one of the great benefits of going outdoors. So before we wrap up, I, I, I want to get back to something that we talked about earlier because we never really finished your story, but you said something about having you think, think of things scientifically. Yeah. Tell me about that.
2: So um, before I started painting, uh, I, my, I had a 30, almost 31 years that I worked in a, uh, an immunology lab at uh, Children's Hospital, Los Angeles. And, um, you know, my education was in biology. And you learn to think about things very precisely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by the way, that does translate into your painting at some point. It was really uh, a challenge for me not to paint every blade of grass and every little, you yeah. know, pebble. Yeah. Uh, because of the way <laughs> I, I was and You're one of these me.
0: guys that understands how light is... Uh, how, how light is reflecting, and
2: yeah, and that's one of the great things about, about teaching actually. Um, I have students that come out and they're thinking, I'm going to learn to planar paint, and I'll teach them what I know. What they don't realize is in the process, they're also going to learn about the physics of light, yeah. they're going to learn about uh, Immanuel Kant's treatise on beauty and aesthetics. They're going to learn about peak shifting and asymmetrical rhythms and all these different things, neuroscience and art, because these are the things that that I continue to study. Um, And and it's all, I suppose, has its root in my scientific background. But to me, if there's something that I can find that's going to make one of my paintings more engaging, I, I want to know what it is. I want to implement it. And so there's, there's all these, you know videos out there by neurologists and, and neuroscientists that talk about the connection in the brain between neuroscience and art and how things work and so I, this is the kind of stuff i listen to and i realized along the way you know art is is a language it's a way of communicating right and that being the case i'd like to have something interesting hopefully even profound to say and in order to do that i need to find every possible way that's, that's available to me. And I realized also that one of the things people don't do sometimes is they don't do things to sort of elasticize their brains. If I can do things to challenge my brain on a regular basis, I believe what happens is I'll start to see opportunities that I wouldn't have seen before. And I've seen this happen, I've driven by a scene or walked past a scene and I say, oh, okay, that's a possible painting right there. And then over time, because I keep making things, you know, putting things in my head that challenge my thinking, then I'll see something else in that same place that I never saw before. Maybe it's a pattern that I didn't recognize. I just believe that if you, if you want to avail yourself of all the opportunities that are there, you have to be open to them. And in order to do that, you can't have a very narrow view of the world. I, I think just, like I said, I'll tell people, you know, anybody can paint, but not everybody can paint well. And. In my experience, when I look at the painters whose work I really love, whether they're contemporary painters or historical painters, you read about them, you listen to interviews, you you read books about them, most of the painters that that I really revere, turns out they're pretty deep folks, right? They're pretty intelligent. There's not a lot of of really great painters out there who you you hear them talking and go, wow, that guy's a a bit of a dim bulb. (laughs) but It just doesn't happen. So for me, challenging my brain by reading things that are that are harder for me to understand and, and just wrestling with it it keeps my brain active it opens up possibilities to paintings
0: yeah I, I think that's very true and I I would say that it's really important to get out of your box
2: yeah absolutely
0: right so <clears throat> I you know I take courses all the time on things that have nothing to do with yeah. painting yeah and things that Uh, You know, I'll see something will pop up online and I'll go, well, why would I ever do that? And then I'll try and I'll just, you know, spend the money and take it. And it it expands your brain. Yep. And, you know, am I ever going to use neuro-linguistic programming or, you know, some of the things that courses, you know, I don't intend to. But, you know, it influences everything and and it opens up a a different viewpoint on everything.
2: Yeah, and if you could look at things from as many different perspectives as possible, I, I just think that you're going to have more possibilities exposed to you. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you're a pretty deep yeah. guy, and this has been a real pleasure. <laughs> and uh, I'm honored to, to be able to have the time to spend with you today and to, to get to know you and help everybody else get to know you. And congratulations, you're doing a beautiful job
2: in your, your work. Thank you very much, Eric. The pleasure and the honor is mine, really. I really appreciate this and what you do in general for the art community. Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Rich, you're really a deep guy, and I really appreciate you sharing your life and your experience in your plein air painting with us today. Thanks for being on the plein air podcast.
2: It's been my, my pleasure and my honor.
0: Well, I love that guy. That's Rich Gallego. Thank you again, Rich, for doing this. Okay, are you guys ready to improve your art sales for 2023? It is time for the Art Marketing Minute.
1: This is the Marketing Minute with Eric Rhodes. Author of the number one Amazon bestseller, Make More Money Selling Your Art Proven Techniques to Turn Your Passion into Profit.
0: Art Marketing Minute. I answer your art marketing questions. You can email your questions to me, eric at artmarketing.com, or there's other ways you can do it too. Now, I got to tell you, um, uh, we have the art marketing podcast separated. So it, it tags the end of the plein air podcast, but it has its own podcast as well. If you're somebody who's not into plein air, uh, that's a way you can get it. All right. Amadeen, my producer, uh, what is the first question?
3: The first question is from Gary from Minnesota. I'm head down and neck deep working on my 2023 goals. One of the first goals is to build a body of work by the end of Q1. I'm obsessed with plein air painting and working with a well-known local artist under a mentorship program he's helping with he's helping me with my journey in finding my voice so right now my body of work is pretty much studies and a bit all over the place that being said i do feel some are worthy for show and sell my questions to you are what is your take take on building a body of work do you start with a formal plan a theme or style Or let the style just evolve and come through as I go. Lastly, how many pieces is considered a body of work?
0: Well, there's a lot of questions in all of that, and I'll try to answer in the best I possibly can, Gary. Uh, I'm glad that you're obsessed with plein air painting. It's a beautiful thing, it's a lot of fun. Um, More people are doing it every day. Gary, You know, you have to make some decisions about what you want to do with your life. If you have the intention of selling artwork, then you've got to start thinking like a business person. And uh, let's say that I was, uh, let's say I decided I was going to start selling uh, scissors, scissors at the farmer's market. And uh, so, what do I have to do before I go to the farmer's market and sell scissors? I got to make scissors. And I got to anticipate how many scissors I need to sell to cover my cost of the farmer's market. I also need to say, okay, how much profit do I need to make? So let's say the farmer's market, I'm using a silly analogy, of course, but let's say the farmer's market table costs you a hundred bucks and your scissors are 10 bucks each. You've got to cover 10 pair of scissors just to cover your cost, right? But covering your cost is of no value because... You're, if, if you go to the farmer's market and you sell 10 pair of scissors and you cover your cost, you haven't really got any value of that time. Now you've got to ask yourself, what, what is my time worth in making the scissors? What is my time worth in putting them in packages? And what is my time worth for standing at the booth for 10 hours on a weekend or 20 hours on a weekend? And then, okay, now what's my time worth? Now you add that to your cost because that's really a cost. And then on top of that, you've got to say, okay, well, how much money should I make? Now, when you're selling something, there's a thing called a cost of sale. Um, A cost of sale could be involved in your marketing costs. So in your particular case, if you're at the farmer's market, right, the cost of sale is the cost of uh, paying for the farmer's market, paying for everything else. That you know your time there. It's not going to include your cost of the scissors, but but you need to keep that in consideration. So if you want to make money as an artist, you got to start thinking about those kinds of things. No matter what you're going to do. Now you're not likely to be selling at the farmers market, but you might be selling at an art show, a tent show, as I call them, uh, or you might decide you're going to sell in a gallery or or otherwise. Now. Uh, you might say, okay, I'm going to do only originals, or you might say I'm going to do originals plus G-clay prints uh, or other kinds of prints. You know, people who do art short shows like to have something that people could buy for fifty or hundred dollars, and so they have print bins uh, and they'll have prints of a big hanging painting. And maybe they never sell the original. Maybe their intent isn't to sell the original, but they, you know, they have those prints handy. You got to kind of decide what's right for you. I'm going to talk galleries today. Because it kind of relates to your question, uh, if you want to get into a gallery, then a body of work is critical. Most anybody can do one good painting. You know, I I see a lot of people who show a painting that they did, and it turns out that they didn't really do most of it because the workshop instructor did most of it, but their their signatures on it, right? But and galleries know this. But can you provide them with dozens of consistently good paintings? See. Galleries want to know that you're consistent, that you've got a body of work, and they also want to bring you on knowing that you can uh, provide consistent work and provide enough inventory to sell because they're in business to sell product, right? And you are the product. So yeah, you need a body of work, but not just for galleries. You also need a body of work for yourself. You If you plan to sell in any way, whether you're selling direct online, whether you're selling art shows, whatever you're method of selling is you have to have some inventory because if you go to an art show and you you know you don't take enough paintings you don't cover your expenses you got to go to the art show with more paintings than you think you're going to sell and what if you sell out all of those so it's always better to have some more in your truck right um same thing with your your uh, warehouse if you're selling online you know you've got to have some paintings tucked away so that you you know so i start by doing projections i start by saying how much money do I need to cover my expenses how much money do I need to make now you know you could say a hundred million dollars and that's that's fine except it's not likely to happen at least not right off the top right you've got to kind of take it in steps so if you've never sold a painting before you've got to get used to selling a painting you've got to probably start out at a lower price point, establish a collector base etc and get to where you want to be and so uh, you're really I don't want to be crass about this but you're really selling inventory you're creating inventory to sell your scissors right your inventory uh, your your living is dependent on your inventory and so if you want to make let's just i'm going to use round numbers or not real numbers but let's say you wanted to make fifty thousand dollars and let's say that you sell your paintings for $1,000, well, you just need to sell 50 paintings. And by the way, if that's $50,000 net that you need after taxes, then you gotta sell you know more than that because taxes are pretty high depending on your bracket. So, uh, and you also need to know that not every one of the 50 paintings is gonna sell, so you need to do more than the 50 paintings. So I'd start there. In terms of a formal plan or theme or style, um, I'm kind of a shoot from the hip kind of a guy. I'm not big on spreadsheets. I use them all the time. I have to use them in business. But I don't know that you have to have a completely formal plan. Uh, But it is a good idea to have some goals and try to hit those goals. Because if you don't have any goals, you don't know what you're aiming for. Uh, But let's say you want to get into a gallery in three months. Well, that's a whole nother topic, getting into a gallery. I'm not going to address that now. But let's say that you have uh, a plan and you have somebody who's going to look at your work in three months, they want to see your body of work, then you're going to have to do 20 to 30 good paintings. Now, a gallery might say, oh, I only want five paintings. But they might also say, hey, I want to do a show. I got a contact from a gallery. They want to do a show. And I'm like, no. And they said, why? I said, because I don't want to do 50 paintings. Um, I don't have that much time. So I turned down the show, but I think that, you know, if you have that opportunity and you can do it, do it. But let's say uh they want to see 20-30 good paintings and you have to do 10 a month for 3 months. That's not likely because that puts you under a lot of pressure. Most of us can't paint 10 good paintings in a month. Some people can, especially if you're a plein air guy and you're really really fast um, and your plein air work is sufficient. But uh, determine how many you can do and then set a goal. Uh, Let's say your goal is in the year 2023, I want to have a body of work that I don't touch that I'm going to offer to a gallery or two, and I want to have 30 paintings, 30 good paintings by the end of the year, then set that goal. And then you say to yourself, okay, how many do I have to do once a month? Now, my friend, artist Heine Hartwig once told me, uh, you can't make money at painting, unless you learn to paint fast, uh, so you might keep that in mind. Uh, but don't don't sacrifice quality for speed. You know, you're learning, you're growing. You know, maybe some point you'll get there, but take it take it appropriately at the pace you need to. Um, but produce what you need by setting up a body of work. Now, uh, you asked, also asked about theme. Um, you know, some artists will do a theme for a show you know, maybe they'll do a theme on Volkswagens or something. I I don't know. I had uh, Rusty Humphreys, I gave him an idea, did a theme on uh, 30, uh, 30 on 30, uh, the US 30, 30 Barnes on 30 or something like that. It was a gimmick, but it was, it worked. It was effective. It got attention. So you might want to think about that. But the one thing that I think is important is, and this is a question that comes up a lot, and that is that you want to be known, for one thing and doing one thing really, really well. This is very important to a gallery. I had a friend who did this gallery show and uh, he had not shown the gallerist what he was doing beforehand. And he decided to change everything he painted. He changed his subject completely and he put it up at the show and it bombed because he was known as a landscape artist and he was doing figures or portraits or something. So you've got to get buy-in from your gallery. But you've got to become known for one thing and doing it well. Uh, let's say it's because you're a plein air guy or uh, you want to do landscape painting, then be really known for your landscape painting. Don't throw portraits in. Don't throw other things in. After you get established, you can do that a little bit, maybe a lot more. But right now, you've got to be known for one thing. Uh, because if you're not, it's going to hurt you. Um, just pick one thing and do it really well. Master it. Okay. Amandine, what's our next question?
3: The next question is from Anthony from Metro Detroit, Michigan. I've been paying for Facebook ads for months now with no sales. And I believe I've tried just about every method you could think of. I've spent well over $2,000 with no sales. A year and a half ago, an online art gallery reached out reached out to me, and I signed with them to sell my art. They take 50% of all sales. They've sold four of my paintings, including my most expensive piece at the time for $5,000. My question is, should I just stop paying for ads myself and just rely on the online gallery to sell my work or keep paying for ads until I figure it out?
0: Anthony, 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 I've got lots of things to tell you on this. Uh, There's a lot of questions in your question. Um, Where do I begin? Well, first off, uh, uh, you might think your advertising is not working, but how are you measuring what's working? Are you measuring the number of people that are visiting your Facebook page? Are you measuring the number of people visiting your website? Are you, do you have a method of capturing people once they visit your website? Do you, um, do you know that they're you know you, you're, you're measuring it purely on sales so you know they're not buying? And so it's not working from that standpoint, but it might be working in another way, and you may just need to tweak things a little bit. Um, the other thing is that social media and all advertising, quite frankly, uh, ads don't work until they work. And what I mean by that is, you know, we have, uh, we do lots of ads, thousands, probably tens of thousands of ads in a year uh, in terms of placement, uh, but we do lots of different creative and we will test everything. We'll put, uh, we'll put an ad up on Facebook. Um, we'll see how many responses we get uh, or how many click-throughs we get uh, because the first thing you're selling, your whole goal is to sell a click. The only reason to do an ad is to sell a click. Now, if you're trying to get them to buy a painting from a click, it's not likely to happen. Uh, it's just not likely to happen. So you've got to take people through a process. And the process is sell a click. Get them, to you know, so you've got to entice them with something on that click. And then you've got to, once they click, then they've got to see something that's going to sell them the next piece of the process. You know, Facebook is kind of known as a five to twenty-five dollar medium, meaning uh, you're not likely to sell anything over twenty-five dollars in a Facebook environment. But if you're if you're buying a lead, and then you can develop that lead. So think about this. I look at all of this like fishing. I'm not a big sportsman, but um fishing so right you you throw your line in the water and you pull the thing back and you you hope to catch a fish well what you everybody wants a big fish right and a big fish takes bigger bait in that case bigger bait is more money better creative etc but really what you really want to do is you want to catch a lot of minnows right because if you can take a net and scoop up a thousand memo minnows, (laughs) then, uh, you can put them in your own fish tank. And then that fish tank, you feed them and you grow them. So what I'm saying is if you can pull leads in and, and then get them on your newsletter, and then you develop them by sending your newsletter, telling them what's going on in your life and showing them, I've got a whole thing on newsletters in my book, uh, showing them, uh, your latest artworks and so on, getting them more familiar with you, then that's a very good thing to do. Now, you don't want just anybody. You want to write your ads so that they repel people as much as they attract people because you don't want to pay to get people. First off, you're paying per click usually, but you don't want to pay to get people who are never going to buy a thing from you. You know, you don't want 12-year-olds coming in. And even though it might be a nice ego thing to have somebody uh, looking at your art, you know, you only want people who are going to buy your art in your particular case, if you're trying to sell art. So there's a whole lot of different things here, but it, you know, one, one strategy is to offer something for free, like an ebook. And then uh, that, you know, ebook and my 50 best paintings. And then that for, they get that ebook, you get their email address You say, you know, I'm sending you the book and I'm adding you to my newsletter list. And then you send them your, your newsletter. And then maybe you send them some promotions from time to time. If they leave you, you have to stop sending them stuff legally. Um, So that's one thing. The other thing is uh, I try, as I mentioned, lots of different copy. Testing is everything. Test everything. You know, test uh, two different versions of your ad, two different images or two different headlines and see which one pulls them in better. And then that's what you call your control once you get a good control that's working then you always try to beat that right so test everything. Um, I have probably spent more than a million dollars on Facebook alone and I'm not an expert. Uh, I employ experts and I talk to them all the time and I know a lot about selling on Facebook and and Instagram and other things but um, uh, you know the the big issue here is that, you are you might be fishing uh in a pond that doesn't have any warm fish. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Well, there are two types of audiences. There are warm audiences and there are cold audiences. Warm means that they are they they know you. Uh real warm, they know you and they like you uh and they trust you. You know, the warmer they are, the better they are for you, and the better or more likely they will become a customer for you. So uh it's kind of hard to get warm audiences in Facebook. Now you can get them, you can retarget people who follow your Facebook page. uh, But you don't know if they're buyers or not, you can retarget people who visit your website. um, If there's a certain you have to have a certain number to be able to do that. And then, then you're being able to warm them up. And so you put things in front of them. And sometimes a strategy for advertising, by the way, is you don't want clicks. And so, for instance, if you you just want to put artwork in front of them so they're seeing your latest artwork um, and you're warming them, you put artwork on there, but you don't put a call to action on there because then you're not paying for the click, but you're getting the exposure, right? But Facebook is on to this, and they know that if they're if you're not getting clicks, they don't want to put you in front of people. If you're getting a lot of clicks, they're gonna put you in front of a lot of other people. So there's a different strategy there. Um, you know, the key to warm audiences are you want warm audiences who like and trust you. uh, But secondly, you want people who already want to own your work or they love your work. They're going to be likely to buy your work. And the way to do that is to look for places that are more likely to advertise where you're more likely to advertise where there are warm audiences. And so like You know, I have this magazine called Fine Art Connoisseur. I have all these art collectors, really, 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 really rich art collectors in many cases. And uh, so, what you do is you go in there and you expose yourself to them. Maybe the wrong term, uh, but you you give yourself exposure. And then what you do is you uh, you just stay visible all the time. Uh, Because here's what happens: is if you're advertising to sell a painting. Uh, that should not be your primary goal. Your advertising should be to brand yourself and to brand yourself so that you can get a higher price. You see, branding um, uh, gets them aware of you. And people go through this process of awareness. Uh, I'm not aware, and then I'm aware. Now I'm interested. Now I'm interested enough to consider buying. Now I'm interested enough to buy. Right, so you got to take them through that process, and some people that takes seven impressions, some people it takes ten impressions, some people it takes thirty impressions. Everybody's different, but you got that's why you got to stay there constantly and be in front of them constantly. We have a lot of artists who do branding who have built their names and reputations, and when you do branding, you're also appealing to the emotions of the of the people. You see, because emotions are uh, what sell products, and so. Uh, status is an emotion, right? How do I compare, you know, to my neighbor, uh, if I own a, uh, you know, George Carlson painting, that's a big deal, right? So everybody's like, wow, you own a George Carlson painting, you feel good, you can beat your chest. And so that's status and status comes from branding, you know, George Carlson's brand was built up over lots of successful wins at art shows and successful sales and things like that, you know, that's, that's that all builds brand. And so you want to take that as a process. Now, it takes time to build a brand. It doesn't happen overnight. You can still sell paintings through that process. But if you, you get a good brand, you get more money for your paintings, you get more demand, you get invited to more things. There's a lot of other things going on. So this is very complicated. I I recommend you read my book as a starting point. Um, Don't think of advertising as making a sale. Think of it as getting leads. Um, You've got to track your numbers, develop a cost per lead strategy. You know, what percentage of your painting sold are you willing to give up for advertising? Well, it should be somewhere about 10 to 20% in the beginning, maybe even more in the beginning, uh, because you have to establish yourself. You know, like some people uh, will pay half of the ad that a gallery runs, and that way, you know, you're you're branding yourself with that major gallery. You go to that gallery and say, "Listen, you're you know, you're I'm on your uh, I'm I'm in your gallery anyway, and I'll pay for half of the ad, and the gallery gets the attention, but they're promoting you. That makes you look better. They it helps them sell." That helps them brand and you know it's a win-win deal. So there's a lot of things you can do. You know, choose cold or warm audiences, but I always try to go for warm. Uh, um Facebook targeting is probably not enough. Facebook isn't selling a lot of art for a lot of people, but it is selling probably the place it's selling the most is people who follow your actual page. You know, here's the latest painting I've done. If, you know, a lot of artists buy paintings and a lot of collectors by paintings. The key is how do you get collectors? Real collectors to know you and follow you on Facebook, and the way to do that is to go on LinkedIn to collectors groups and start uh, commenting on posts. Don't ever promote yourself; just comment, do smart things. Then they start looking for you. They look you up on LinkedIn, or and then they look you up on Facebook, Instagram. They follow you, and the next thing you know, they're buying paintings. There's a lot to all of this. Um, you paid a high cost of marketing for that online gallery, fifty percent but that's what we all pay for galleries. You know, most of us pay 50% for our galleries on consignment. Um, and that's, that's worth doing. So I recommend you keep your online gallery, try to get a couple more galleries, uh, look for other ways. You don't ever want to have all your eggs in one basket because sometimes people drop eggs, right? So galleries go out of business. Things change for online galleries. You know, there's a lot of things, but try to spread your risk. Anyway, that is today's art marketing minute.
1: This has been the Marketing Minute with Eric Rhodes. You can learn more at ArtMarketing.com.
0: Well, I hope you will join us at the Plenaire Convention in 2023. Go to PlenaireConvention.com. But sooner than that, I hope you will join us for Plenaire Live coming up in March. That's PlenaireLive.com. It's worldwide. And this is a chance for those of you who've never been able to come to the Plenaire Convention. It's pretty cool. We've got a massive number of people coming already, so we hope that you'll join us. And please consider subscribing to our magazine, Planair Air Magazine. It's at planairmagazine.com. If you've not seen my blog where I talk about life and stuff and things, you know, stuff and things, highly technical terms, check it out. It's uh, coffeewitheric.com. You can get it for free. It comes on Sundays. It's called Sunday Coffee, coffeewitheric.com. And I'm on the air daily on Facebook. Uh, My show is called Art School Live. I always have visiting artists. Um, Hundreds of artists doing demonstrations. You can find them all on YouTube at Art School Live, and you should subscribe there. We just passed 100,000 subscribers. That's kind of fun. Um, Noon, Eastern, every weekday. Every weekday. We started with COVID. We went seven months, seven days a week. And since then, it's been every weekday since then. Hit the subscribe button when you go, all right? Thank you for uh, doing that. Follow me, please, on Instagram. It's at Eric Rhodes. Also Facebook, TikTok, you know, all those things. And anyway, thanks for tuning in today. I'm Eric Rhodes, publisher, founder of Plein Air Magazine. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. I'm honored. It is a big world out there. Let's go paint it. We'll see you. Bye-bye.
1: This has been the Plein Air Podcast with Plein Air Magazine's Eric Rhodes. You can help spread the word about Plein Air Painting by sharing this podcast with your friends. And you can leave a review or subscribe on iTunes so it comes to you every week. And you can even reach Eric by email, eric at pleinairmagazine.com. Be sure to pick up our free ebook, 240 Plein Air Painting Tips by some of America's top painters. It's free at pleinairtips.com. Tune in next week for more great interviews. Thanks for listening.